Ramble. My dogs will eat anything. I mean, I have two Frenchies and it's a daily struggle to keep them from trying to eat toilet paper, bees, even trash. My dogs have no idea what's good for them. And you know, that's okay because their job is to be cute. My job is to take care of them to the best of my ability. That is why I only buy the farmer's dog dog food. Think about it. Most dog foods claims it's made out of whole ingredients. But then why does it come in the form of these very crusty pellets? But dogs will eat anything you give them, even dry kibble. Most dog food claims that they're made out of whole ingredients. But when I stare at these dry kibbles, it's very hard for me to see the whole ingredients. And I always had to mix in bone broth or water because it would be so dry that my dogs would eat too quickly and they would hack it up. It just didn't look tasty. The farmer's dog believes that all dogs deserve to eat real fresh food. That's why Farmer's Dog dog food is made from whole wheat and veggies and gently cooked in human-grade kitchens to preserve nutritional value. It makes me feel so good seeing my dog's little tails wagging. Sometimes Mango's entire butt will shake when it's time for their dinner because they know and I know that they're eating fresh, healthy food. It genuinely looks like human food. I've noticed such an improvement in how shiny and soft their coat is and their breath doesn't teleport me into another dimension anymore. I can see the veggies in their food. I mean, my dog always gains a little bit of weight this time last year just because they move around less when it gets a little bit colder. So I feel like it's very important to always watch portions in the winter months. The farmer's dog makes it easy to monitor my dog's portions. Our dog's meals arrive in pre-portioned, ready-to-serve packs, which is super convenient. All you need to do is tell the farmer's dog about your puppy or your dog, and they'll deliver personalized, vet-developed recipes for as little as $2 a day. And you can adjust the recipe selection, portion sizes, and delivery cadence according to your needs and schedule. Get 50% off your first box of fresh, healthy food at thefarmersdog.com slash mango. That's 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash mango. Bada bing, bada boom. Welcome to this week's main episode of Rotten Mango. I'm your host, Stephanie Sue. She died six times that day. Each time was utter chaos. The alarms would blare and they would make this loud, piercing noise. The one that feels like it's entering your brain. It would echo off the cold walls of the hospital. Noises like this in a hospital that's filled with patients that desperately need rest, they serve one purpose and one purpose only. The alarm is to alert doctors and nurses that someone is dying, that if nothing is done, they will be dead. And even if you do everything that you possibly can, they might die anyway. Each time the alarm would sound, the doctors and nurses would run into the room scrambling to revive the patient. And with each revival, each medical mystery, they would traumatize Mary the patient, and her body more and more. They're putting her body through so much stress, so much trauma to bring her back. The family members in the unit would be rushed out into the hallway so that they don't have to witness the traumatizing efforts of the hospital staff to keep their loved one alive. And up against the wall in the hospital hallway, they would stand there each time she coded. Bill, the husband of Mary, the patient, he would soon enter into a romantic relationship with Mary's sister so his wife's sister. Then there was the patient's daughter, a doctor herself. If anyone knew the ins and outs of life and death, it would have been her. Then there was Adam, the patient's son. He was struggling to make ends meet. He desperately wanted his mother's acceptance and potentially even her money. He allegedly had a dependence on alcohol and Adderall. He had already admitted to doing some horrible things like sleeping with a 16-year-old when he was 20. Then there was Adam's girlfriend standing there. The same ex-girlfriend that accused him, Adam, of rape and assault. All lined up against the hospital corridor. Why is that important? 
because by the time that Mary had walked in through the emergency room doors, she was already dead. Her body had already started murdering itself. And the thing that triggered it all had no antidote, no cure. It was too late. Even if the doctors knew what was wrong with her, there was nothing they could have done to stop it. Her cells were basically programmed to commit suicide. And in the group of Mary's loved ones, the ones that were there to support Mary, the ones that were crying out for her, one of them knew that it was too late for Mary, and they were betting on it. As always, full show notes are available at RottenMangoPodcast.com. I highly encourage you guys to check it out because this is such a controversial case. And another thing is, this is going to be a two-parter. Please listen to both parts. The second part will be posted on Sunday as the mini-sode. Listen to two parts before you form a basis, a, a conclusion, an opinion on this. Because every time that I read a source, I would think, oh my God, this person is a thousand percent guilty. Then I would read a different source and then I would think, wait a minute, maybe they're not guilty. And I do think that there's a chance that I'm going to fail spectacularly at this. But this is my attempt at showing you guys both sides in one pod. Well, I guess two episodes. I guess that's my vision for these two episodes. And I want you to feel like both sides are presented but it's just a confusing case. I think every time I make up my mind, I change it. And there is a lot more evidence supporting one side than the other, thanks to two separate trials that were held. But I just want to present the case to you and talk to you about Mary Yoder's life, her wonderful life. And I do want to mention that I don't have a particularly strong stance on this case. I think it's one of those situations where I don't really feel like I have the right to have that perspective. When even the family members of the victim, the sisters of the victim, have chosen separate sides. And I just feel like, who am I to tell some of the family members that what I think that their belief is wrong, or I think they should think a certain way, I, I, I feel like that's like gaslighting them. I wasn't even there. So I just want to put that out there. However, I think it's nearly impossible for someone to be unbiased. I mean, if we think we're unbiased, we're kidding ourselves. We've got personal opinions, past experiences, gut feelings. It's going to sway us in a direction or another. So I'm going to try to leave out my personal thoughts until the very end. I don't know if it's going to work. So let's get into it. Adam stood there. The walls were closing in on him. The one person that he might have been able to talk to about everything going on was his mom. And she was the person that was strapped up to the hospital bed with countless tubes and IVs just inserted into her body. So he pulled out his phone in a moment of weakness, in a moment of just wanting to feel a, any semblance of comfort. He texted, I'm sorry to put this pressure on you. You don't owe me anything, but I need you. He hit send. If there was any time to reach out to an ex-girlfriend, he felt like it was now. Katie, his ex-girlfriend, rushed to the hospital to be with Adam. Maybe this was a time to put their differences aside. Why they broke up, what was wrong with them, it had nothing to do with Mary. Both of them cared about Mary. That's what they would focus on, with each other at their sides. That's it. Adam would cry to her. She coded, she's back now, but we fell apart. What? They have no idea who or what brought this whole thing on? She's important to me too, you know? Adam said, I'm not telling you you gotta go. You can stay. You can come up even. They said that she can have a quick visit. They'll allow you in her room. Katie walked up to join the Yoder family in the ICU to support Mary. But it would be too late. Mary was breathing. She was talking. She was conscious. But every cell in her body was committing suicide. It would only be a matter of time till she died. A two-page typed letter landed on the medical examiner's desk. After the death of Mary Yoder. 
The letter encouraged investigators to look into Mary's death. It was no stomach bug like they suspected that had killed her. It was no GI infection. The letter explained and alleged that she was poisoned by her own son, Adam Yoder. The writer claimed Adam told them that he killed his own mom and described in detail exactly how he did it step by step. Why? The writer even provided a motive. Adam was annoyed. He wanted more attention from his mom. He wanted more financial help. He was visibly irritated when people would praise his mom around him. It's like he couldn't share the spotlight. And the part that made the medical examiner and the investigators nervous was that the writer alleged Adam Yoder still had poison left over. He had hid it in his Jeep. And the writer was certain Adam would try and strike again. So let's talk about Mary. Mary was one of six sisters. She's the victim in this case. And I can't even begin to imagine what each of these sisters has gone through after Mary was basically ripped from their lives. She was constantly said to be this ball of energy. She was a happy, strong woman. Everyone deeply cared about her. And I know people say that about everyone that they've lost. But Mary was interesting. This is a very, um, I think this is a telling description of how people described her. They said that she was like a woman who had a rocket on her back she's always shooting off somewhere she's full of energy just had this fire in her i think the saddest part about this case is that not only did the sisters lose mary but it seems like the whole family is at odds at who killed mary some of these sisters are even supporting the person that has been at least judicially convicted and sentenced to prison for mary's murder wow must be rough then yeah So Bill and Mary met in college. They were actually roommates, but everything started strictly as friends. Not even as friends, I don't think. They rarely spoke. Some sources claimed it was love at first sight, but um, M. William Phelps, who talked to Adam Yoder and the Yoder family himself, the couple's son, he explained it was not love at first sight. Bill was busy trying to get his doctorate in philosophy. That's like a really intense doctorate, by the way, in philosophy. Mary's trying to get through school. She's in a relationship with someone else. Mary was raised in this small, small town in upstate New York. Small town girl, huge personality, like way too big for that town. Everyone that knew her said she walks in the room, atmosphere changed. Just this energy. She makes people feel comfortable. She's instantly lovable. Everyone's first impression is that not only is she bustling with life, but she's very graceful. She's very honest. The more you get to know her, the more you start feeling better about yourself. You're like, wow, I have a really good gauge of character. I freaking knew it. (laughs) You're like, I knew it. Eventually, Mary broke up with her boyfriend and Bill was like, hey, do you want to go out on a date with me? And they had this crazy relationship. The type that their kids would be like, wait, you guys did what? You guys are my lame parents. How are you guys so exciting back then? It was wild. After a few months of dating, Bill is getting writer's block on his dissertation for his uh, doctorate. And out of the blue, he asked Mary, do you want to travel with me? Mary said yes without even thinking about it. Neither of them had money. They sold all of their belongings, fit everything they owned into Bill's slightly broken down car, and they just start driving. No plans, no destination, nothing. Just each other. They get to Arizona first, then New Mexico. They settle in Albuquerque for a while. You're like, oh, that's fascinating. Why did they choose Albuquerque? Mary mentioned she liked how it was spelled. Albuquerque, it's a fun name. They didn't know anyone in Albuquerque. They didn't have a job in Albuquerque. The first night in Albuquerque was a freaking nightmare. They didn't have money for housing, so they set up a, they found a campground, set up a tent. Side note, they love nature. 
They did not go to Portland. They did not go to uh, Oregon. They did not go to Washington because it rained so much. They don't like the rain. So they're like, New Mexico, that sounds pretty dry. First night, they settle in, in a tent. Rain pours down. The entire tent is drenched, soaked in inches of water. The, everything they own is like bobbing around in the water inside the tent. They're like, what the fork is going on? They start laughing about it. They weren't even upset. They weren't annoyed. They didn't blame each other. Like, why didn't you check the weather? They were just giggling. They were happy to be there. And all their stuff that's wet, it could dry out. That's all that mattered. So the two of them, they took turns working at Pizza Hut to pay some bills. Bill tried to tackle his dissertation in his free time. It was rough. And it was actually in Albuquerque that Bill proposed to Mary. He never planned on proposing. The guy said, I never even thought that I was going to get married. I mean, at this age, what kind of guy thinks like that? But one day, he gets knocked out by this thought of like, I got to marry this woman. This is the woman. So he proposed. And uh, they gathered up all the money they had left. Went on a honeymoon trip to Hawaii. They didn't even have money for their rent. They found a cute little spot under a mango tree near the beach, set up a tent. Bill said it's like time lost all meaning on our honeymoon. We could have stayed like that forever, just working small jobs, living under this mango tree, making ends meet. Just the two of us in the world without social distraction, life moving at the pace of nature. Sometimes I wonder if that's how life was supposed to be. But after a few weeks, something inside of him was like, Bill, you got to finish the dissertation, the dissertation. It was like a fire all of a sudden. Like he couldn't sleep without thinking about it. And he told Mary and she was the most supportive wife. She didn't care that they would have to leave paradise behind. Go back to Buffalo, New York. No offense, Buffalo, New York. But I don't know if it compares to Hawaii. And she's got to work her ass off so her husband can focus on his thesis. And she's willing to do anything for her family. Because at that point, she finds out that she's pregnant. The couple would go on to have three children. Liana, who would grow up to be a successful physician in a family practice. Uh, Tamron, a.k.a. Tammy. And finally, Adam. Mary was a fantastic mom. She really was. Just listen to this. Mary did not look at her life as either glass half full or half empty. She was just happy that something at all was in the glass. That's very optimistic. I mean, she cherished life. She saw the good in everything. She cared about a healthy lifestyle crazy about organic produce she loved food supplements gardening i think made her more passionate about food so as she's gardening she's understanding the process of how vegetables are grown and they don't need pesticides they don't need all this gunk and chemicals everything can be organic everything can be natural so that's what she did she had a giant green thumb if you think mary had a green thumb actually she had she had like a hulk thumb so she's interested in how food is grown, providing nutrition to the body. She was a healthy woman. She was 60 years old when she passed. Salsa dancing, belly dancing. I mean, she was full of activity and energy. She was so fit, so healthy. I genuinely would never say that she looked 60 to me or even acted 60, not that 60 is old. So together, the two of them, the couple, Bill and Mary, they decide that they're going to become chiropractors. They go to chiropractor school together. They thought it'd be interesting. Bill said being a chiropractor is about wellness. It's not about fixing something. It's about opening the channels of the body to allow life to extend outward into the body so that body can heal itself. <laughs> I know, I'm like, what? It kind of makes sense, but it's a very philosophical way of thinking about <laughs> chiropractic, right? I'm like, wait, can you just crack my back? I like the sound it's kind of good it's satisfying <laughs> so they settled down in upstate new york opened up their chiropractor business called chiropractic family care and they would personally run this business for the next 30 years 
So 30 years is a long time. It's pretty easy for the couple to fall into a routine. And this routine was a good one. There was no resentment for the life that they lived, at least that we know of. At this point in the story, Bill is 69 years old. Mary is 61 years old. And despite their ages, both of them are active. Uh, Mary more than Bill, but active. Even when they were younger, I feel like Mary could beat anyone in like an energy contest. Not even in the annoying way. She was not annoying about it. It just radiated out of her. So 6.30 a.m., this is their routine. Bill jumps out of bed to do his morning workout. Mary's already up. She's rushing around the house getting ready for work. She's a bit of a tornado when she gets ready. So Bill said he would take shelter in his little exercise room every morning because... She just prefers it if you don't get in her way. So he would pop out right before she leaves for work, give her a kiss goodbye, wave her off. Bill used to be the head chiropractor of the practice when they first started. Mary was in and out of um, giving birth, raising the children. But now that Bill is older, he was on the fast lane to retirement. Mary's taken up the extra hours. She's working three days a week. And when she wasn't at work, she would drive to the Amish countryside to provide treatment to the Amish. Who wow. couldn't make the long trek into town. Wow. Yeah, this is a woman that loved her patients. She loved what she did for a living. Sometimes when her patients' insurances stopped paying or when they couldn't afford it, she would take payment in pies, in baked goods, wow. in, I'm going to cry, oh in produce. She genuinely was not in it for the money. And it's, I don't even know what was fueling her. She's, she's like crazy in the best way possible. So for example, she skipped breakfast. She goes to work. She doesn't even have a big lunch. She's not like, let me eat this crazy nutritious. She's like, I'm going to eat a protein shake. That's what she had lunch almost every single day. She didn't want a food coma. She wanted to get her nutrients in and focus on the next patient. She was go, 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 go. So she loved her little protein shakes. She specifically loved a Shackley protein shake. I don't know anything about this company, but it just passed all of her standards. She was obsessed with it, drank it every day for lunch, and that was about it. She felt like other food weighed her down. Now, with all <laughs> this energy... Maybe I should check it out. Yeah. <laughs> now, with all this energy, the couple are making plans to sell the business soon. They're like, we've been in it for 30 years. And since it's just the two of them, they don't have like a third chiropractor... They have not been on vacation for more than like three days. Because who else are you going to go on vacation with if not your partner? But then no one's going to be at the business. It's, it, they just haven't had one. So summer of 2015, they're actively trying to sell the practice. It's not easy. It's not just about packing their things up and ending their lease. They need someone to take over to make sure that their patients are left without care. It's like buying a restaurant. It's like a seamless transition. Yeah. It's not just I'm shutting down the place here by the real estate. Um, they needed to bring someone in. They needed to make sure they were good, caring, compassionate. They needed to make sure the patients love them. That is another full-time job, training someone. Every time they thought about it, they're like, okay, maybe we should think about it later. My head is starting to hurt. So as a way to get motivated, to bite the bullet, the couple were planning a trip to Europe, their first real vacation, one month. They had another doctor come in for the month that they were gone, take care of the patients. Everything was falling into place. They were going to go visit Liana. She lived like six hours away. She had kids. They were going to go visit her, hang out with the kids, and then jet off to their bucket list destinations. A full month, just Mary and Bill alone, peace. They were so excited. They were planning everything. Hotel reservations, itineraries, everything. Bill and Mary had been married for 30, 38 years at this point. 38 years before she was murdered. Of course he was going to be the first suspect. 
Statistically, if you were to bet money in any of these cases that the husband killed the wife, you might make a small fortune. The odds are in your favor. So what were they like as a couple? Did they have problems? Sure, they're jetting off to Europe on a vacation, but was this some sort of effort to reconcile? Was this a way to mend their broken relationship? While they were together, it seemed like everything was perfect. Is that still true? Bill was um, an author. Mary had her own things. You know, she liked gardening. She liked all these organic things. But Bill liked books. He wrote a lot. They were all about philosophy and how to be happy. One is titled The Happy Mind, Seven Principles to Clear Your Head and Lift Your Heart. The book is advertised as an alternative way of thinking based on seven principles that would lead to deep and lasting happiness, which is ironic because many who knew Bill claimed that he was deeply unhappy. Mary's sister said, Bill was a brilliant scholar. He had two PhDs. He was the valedictorian in one of his classes. He was also an avid, avid murder mystery buff and the quintessential detailist. He loved little details, very detail-oriented, perfectionist, meticulous, organized, incredible knowledge for computers. Oddly, he never acknowledged it. Maybe he thought others would be bored by it. Maybe he wasn't that incredible at computers. Maybe he was sick of helping people set up their iClouds. I'm not sure. But Mary's sister said, All that is to say, Bill was miserable in his relationship. He wanted to retire, but they hadn't saved any money. All they had was debt. Why? Apparently, Mary had told this sister that all the savings they did have, Bill used it to promote his last book, who he thought this book was going to be like a Tony Robbins level next seller, bestseller. Mary's sister said that she heard from one of the Yoder kids that it didn't work out. They put a lot of money into the marketing and it didn't work. The way Mary's sister saw the relationship was that Bill was all about Bill. That's it. That's all he cared about. There were even stranger accusations about their relationship, that he had started an affair with someone very close to Mary before she died. Another accusation that he had a hidden super crop of marijuana that he was growing, as well as countless affairs. It's alleged that he even asked Mary for an open relationship at one point, which he denied. He said they had a short, brief conversation on having an open relationship way before they even got married, like 40 years ago, when they were just casually dating. But he also admits that he was the one to bring it up. Side note, Bill also went up north into the little countryside once a month. He would rent a house or a hotel room so that he could write his next book in solitude. Rumors started that he was actually cheating on Mary while he was up there. Bill denied this. But Mary's sister suspected that Mary was interested in marriage counseling just a week before she died. So all of these little accusations are adding up and I don't know how many of them are going to be proven. I guess we'll find out. But all of them are adding up to make Bill seem very suspicious. But there's a flip side to all these points. There's an argument to all these allegations. And sure, they had financial problems, but they were about to sell their practice, which would provide a big payout, right? That they would probably retire on. Trust me, the allegations on Bill are going to be heavily explored in part two. I tried to organize the research in the best way possible. So let's go with this. Bill is the first suspect. Then we have Adam Yoder, the son. Adam was close and distant with his parents at the same time. It was strange. Sometimes he would have these moments where he would lay his soul bare to his mother, tell her everything, how he felt, what he was thinking, what he was struggling with. He never told Bill. He just told Mary, his mom. But most of the time, Adam was very private. He didn't tell his parents much about his personal life. They only saw parts that he let them see or the parts where he didn't know they were watching. Adam was... Also close in a sense because he worked for them. So briefly, he worked at the chiropractor's office as the receptionist, admin, assistant. But by the end of the year, he's like, mom, dad, I want to go back to school full time. 
Can my girlfriend Katie Conley take over the position instead? She slowly transitioned into the full-time office manager. Listen, I don't know if the Yoders would have agreed if they didn't like Katie. I don't feel like this position change was forced upon them. It didn't feel like Adam was begging, like, Katie doesn't have a job, guys, please, please, please. In fact, I think the Yoders were very reluctant to hire Katie because what if the two broke up? That'd be really awkward. I don't know. Should we be mixing all these relationships in our business? I don't know. The energy is just weird. Despite this, they saw genuine potential in Katie. She was very responsible, smart, beautiful. She was 21 at the time, but she carried herself with so much maturity and grace. She seemed business-oriented, classy, soft-spoken, intelligent, emotionally aware, aka very quick to read the room. Even the patients loved her. It was almost like the perfect arrangement. So the Yoders, they grew to love and trust Katie. All three Yoders, Mary, Bill, and Adam. But they never really talked about her. Or the relationship. Adam, like I said, it was a close but distance relationship with his parents. Sure, Katie was dating Adam, but the Yoders, they were very professional with her. Bill said she was just a good employee, responsible. When we gave her a list of things to do, she would return the list complete. We never worried that she would never get it done. She always did whatever it took. She actually had a knack for numbers and record keeping, which is fantastic because like I said, the Yoders did not. Katie was the one making sure the books were balanced at the end of the day, and she never made any mistakes. But the Yoders were getting paid in lettuce, sometimes pies. You know what I mean? Like, they were really, they were all about their patience. That's all they cared about. Bookkeeping was the last thing on their mind. Yeah. I mean, I think to the Yoders, all that mattered was that these patients were giving what they could. But Mm -hmm. to Katie, she's like, that's not what an accountant really cares about now, is it? Right? So she was very good at it. Now back to Adam. He told his parents, look, you guys have this work relationship with her. Our personal stuff should have nothing to do with how she's treated in the office. So once she starts working for you guys, I'm going to stop talking to you about my relationship with Katie. Mm -hmm. Because even if we break up, even if we're fighting, I don't want that to impact her work. This is her livelihood. With that, Adam stopped telling them about any hiccups in the relationship that they had. He omitted a lot of things from his parents, like the fact that he owed Katie close to $23,000, like the fact that he got Katie pregnant, allegedly, like the fact that Katie went to the police and claimed that Adam Yoder had violently, viciously raped her. There was a lot that the Yoder parents did not see going on. Wow. And she's still... At the office. Wow. So let's talk about the day of the murder. If you ask two random patients from Mary's day how she was feeling July 20th of 2015, depending on what time they saw her, they would give you a completely different response. Her morning patients would say, oh, what? That's a random question. Why did something happen? No, Mary was being Mary, very bright, uh, full of life, smiling. I mean, same as always, nothing different. She, like always, gave me a hug when I left it. No, why? What's wrong? Then Mary went out to eat lunch with her 93-year-old mother at her sister's house, and then she got back at around 1.30 p.m. Patients who saw her after her lunch break said that she was a completely different person. They had never seen Mary like this, ever. She was distracted, quiet. Normally, Mary never left the treatment room. Once she entered, you had her undivided attention, no matter what happened, no matter how many times the phone rang, no matter if there was a fire in the kitchen, you were first. But this time, she's running in and out of the room without even a warning, without even an excuse me. It sounded like she was sick. The patients could see her run towards the bathroom. Her face looked gaunt, colorless. She wasn't smiling. Normally, she gave everyone a hug at the end of each treatment, but she just seemed so detached. 
At 6.30 p.m., Mary calls Bill to tell him that she was still at the office, but she was going to be home soon. It's kind of routine for them to call each other before coming home because typically the other party will have dinner ready. So Bill immediately senses something is off. She doesn't sound like herself. She sounded strained and exhausted. And I know that some people might sound like this after a long day at work, but Mary was not one of those people. I just feel really sick, Bill. What? Mary, are you you okay? I'm going to be on my way home, but I just don't feel well. The two hung up while Bill sat nervously in the house. He didn't even bother to prep dinner. He just knew that something was something weird was going on. His heart is fluttering. Mary is never this sick. She never really sounds like this. And the last thing she's probably going to want to do when she's sick is eat. So he kept checking out the blinds to see if she was pulling in yet. And when she finally gets home, she bursts through the door, ignores Bill, beelines it straight for the bathroom, face practically submerged in the toilet, hacking up everything. Bill is outside the door because she shut the door. Are you okay? Are you okay? Bill said he was terrified. She looked like she was from the walking dead, like completely drained of color. Sweetie, are you okay? What's going on? In between her throwing up, she would say, I feel really, really bad. She threw up for nearly 30 minutes before finally opening the door a crack and she was pale, sweating. She couldn't even hold herself up. She was leaning up against the walls. Whatever was making her ill was clearly winning the fight. Bill helped Mary to the living room couch, got her a plastic throw-up bucket. She couldn't talk, she couldn't walk, she couldn't do anything. She laid there exhausted for what felt like 20 minutes before jumping up out of nowhere and running to the bathroom again. This went on for two hours. Bill could hear her in pain from the outside. It just didn't make sense. Mary is normally a very health-conscious woman. She's very conscious of what she consumed. She never really got this ill ever. She was careful about how much she slept. She was very well-being focused. Maybe it's some sort of bug, right? That you can't really prevent. By 9.30 p.m., she was back on the couch and begging Bill, just go upstairs, please. It just feels so gross. I'll be okay once everything passes. There's no point in you just sitting here. It's just making me even more uncomfortable. Like, it's fine. I'm just going to sleep on the couch. I feel like we've all kind of been there where you're like, I don't want to leave my partner when they're sick, but also I don't want them to try and use that energy to argue with me. What if they genuinely just want to throw up in peace? So Bill was very hesitant. He's like, okay, well, I'm going to be right upstairs. You need anything? I'm right upstairs. And he slept. He woke up around 6.30 a.m. like clockwork. Doesn't even have an alarm set. Today was different, though. He panicked the minute that he woke up. Mary was not in the bed. I don't know why. He just kind of assumed she'd throw up a little more and then she'd find her way upstairs and knock out on the bed. So he runs downstairs. Mary's still on the couch. Mary, how are you? She didn't look any better. She was even more pale. The color had drained from her face completely. She was sweating. And suddenly, the strong grandmother, the strong mother, the matriarch of the house was so frail and she looked so weak. I didn't sleep all night long, vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal pains. I've been running in and out of the bathroom, sitting on the toilet with a bucket between my legs, nonstop throwing up in diarrhea. Bill fished his phone from his pocket and called their daughter, Liana. Remember, she's a doctor. Mm -hmm. She didn't make Bill panic. I guess doctors have a way of staying calm. She suggested. It sounds like some sort of GI bug. I would say if she's been throwing up all night, get her to the ER, at least get her some fluids. She's probably dehydrated. This was the second time in months Bill was going to be helping someone across the ER threshold. A few months ago, Adam had the stomach bug. He was nonstop throwing up. It wasn't pretty. He was hospitalized overnight, which side note, the doctors even said there had been a GI bug going around. So maybe it was that. 
this is my favorite way to unwind at the end of a long day. I make myself some hot chocolate. I wrap up in my coziest blanket and I become Detective June Parkett. I don't actually become a detective, but that's how I feel when I'm playing June's journey. You play as June and the story starts with you flying from London to New York to investigate the suspicious murder of your sister and brother-in-law. But that's just the first in a very long line of suspicious murders. There's so many family secrets, twists, and you get to uncover all of these mysteries through a series of hidden objects games. Like you search for hidden letters or other objects that help you advance in the story. The storytelling in this game is impeccable. I mean, every detail is important. It stimulates you because you feel like a detective. The game takes June literally all around the world, from New York to Havana to Paris, and you get to meet all kinds of characters. I do not trust any new characters at this point because everybody seems to have a hidden motive. And as the story is progressing, you can learn about new characters as you collect bits of information to build your photo album. I also really love the dialogue in this game and just how immersive it is. There are some scenes where you really feel like you are Detective June. There's mystery, murder, danger, even romance. Sometimes it does get a little intense, so if I feel like taking a break from all the crazy plot twists, I go back to my little private island. Okay, it's not little, it's actually huge. It's called Orchid Island, and I get to decorate it in any way that I want. I have a waterfall on my island, and I'm currently making a train station route. There's just something so satisfying about getting to color code everything and make sure all the pieces fit. It's such a cozy yet thrilling game. It's almost as satisfying as puzzling the pieces of June's family's mysteries together because, listen, I'm telling you, my husband will definitely find me on the couch later today playing June's Journey. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. My dog Mango has been with me through some really crazy times in life. I mean, she's been with us for the past 10 years. If you guys don't know, Mango is my little French bulldog with half hair, okay? She's fuzzy only half the time, and she is literally the glue of my family. I have quite literally named an entire podcast and a YouTube channel from my dog Mango. She is the reason that these channels exist. But three years ago, Mango was diagnosed with this autoimmune disease and she was always at risk of excessive bleeding. Her fur was falling out in clumps. It was it was a pretty stressful time in my life. I was constantly emotional about Mango being in pain and then I would be, get so stressed out every time I started going over the vet bills. Every time we took her to the vet, it was like thousands of dollars because her condition was so difficult to treat. And I am just so thankful that we had savings to cover it. I wish I had known about spot pet a few years back it would have just eased so much of that stress our partner spot pet insurance is here to share a message today on how they are a secret weapon against the unexpected because with spot pet insurance you can get up to 90 percent cash back on eligible vet bills our dogs are always there for us during our hardest times and we need to be there for them too go to spotpet.com today and get a quote instantly visit spotpet.com paid ad from spot pet insurance waiting periods annual deductibles co-insurance benefit limits and and exclusions may apply. For all terms, visit spotpetins.com slash sample policy. Insurance plans are underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. Bill was concerned, but as concerned as you would be for a loved one who's caught a stomach bug that's really bad. So I'm not sure the realization hit Bill that this was different. This was weird. So a couple months ago, Adam yeah. went through the same symptoms. Yes, but not as bad. And okay. when he was hospitalized, the doctors are like, yeah, there's a nasty GI bug going on right now. Did they diagnose him or just... No, they were like, take these meds, stay hydrated. Mm. We're going to watch you overnight, but uh, you're good to go. 
And then he got better. Yeah. But he, Adam would say, it took him a long time to get better. He doesn't know if it's just his immune system was weak or if this was really some kind of crazy GI bug. But normally, let's say you recover in like a week. He said he didn't feel like himself for a full month. No. So the realization did not hit Bill that this wasn't going to be a stomach bug. I don't know when the realization hit. I really don't. I don't know if it was him coming to the hospital and seeing doctors hovering over Mary's bed. I don't know if it was when he pushed through the crowd of doctors and saw Mary. Her skin almost looked gray and her eyes were tired and she was panicked. Maybe the realization hit him the next morning after Mary had been hospitalized the entire night and Mary still hadn't gotten better. Or maybe the realization hit when the doctors definitively told Bill that they ran all the tests and there was no way that she had the stomach bug or the flu and whatever was happening to Mary seemed to be some sort of medical mystery. Side note, a lot of things happened in the hospital. It wasn't just a steep decline. At one point, Mary started feeling better and the doctors had talked to Bill as if she was going to be discharged soon. So I think this adds to Bill's um, explanation of why he wasn't so panicked when Mary was initially hospitalized because he would go home and sleep. He would do all these things. He would run errands for Mary. Mm -hmm. He still went into the practice to do some paperwork. The doctors kind of told him it's probably a stomach bug. She was getting better at one point. Anyway, one of the nights that Bill was home to just sleep while Mary was in the hospital, he basically crawled upstairs and he put his phone on the charger, which both he and Mary had a routine of charging their phones in the next room over. They did not like sleeping with their phones. In the, this was actually Mary's, uh, allegedly Mary's suggestion. They didn't like having their phones in their bedroom. They would have interrupted sleep. You know, there was someone, uh, a family member who was going through an interesting time that would call them nonstop. In the mm. middle of the night. And it was just very distracting. So Bill, running on autopilot, exhausted, he goes into the other room, puts his phone on the charger, crashes onto his primary bedroom. And he said that at, during this point, Mary seemed like she was going to be okay. Otherwise, why would he have come home? He said, I was not concerned about Mary at all. She was on the men when I left. Her symptoms had been good all day and she seemed okay when I left. The doctors indicated that there was no problem. And to show you how non-serious he thought it was for a while, Liana, the daughter, the doctor daughter, called a nurse that she was close with that worked at the hospital that Mary was admitted to. And even the daughter's understanding of the situation was that something was wrong with Mary's gallbladder. She's not in critical condition. If it's not the stomach bug, it's the gallbladder. And no one expected that stable status to change anytime soon. If Liana felt like it was serious, she would have left her home in Long Island and gone to be with her mother in the hospital. Let's be real. Side note, Adam was also at Liana's house as well. So Liana has- lived together? No, Adam lives near the Yoders, the parents. Adam had gone to be with his nieces and nephews because it was their birthday soon. So he's like, I'm going to drive the six hours, you know, be with my niece and nephew for their birthday. This was a pre-planned trip. It had been planned for months. Now, the drive was only about six hours. Adam tried to visit Liana as much as possible. Sometimes he would even bring Katie to meet with the kids before they broke up, of course. Liana and the kids, they all took a liking to Katie. And Tammy, the Yoder's other child, lived about an hour away. And none of the kids were rushing to be at Mary's side because, again, they didn't think it was that serious. Adam would be the first one to drive upstate to be with his mother. Some said that was suspicious because still, when he started that drive, nothing had changed in Mary's prognosis. Others said it wasn't suspicious because Liana has a husband and two kids. Even if she wanted to spend a day or two with her mom in the hospital, it would require a ton of planning. Meanwhile, Adam is a single dude in college. He's like, oh, my mom's in the hospital. I guess I'll go be with her. I don't know. So as Adam is making the six-hour drive back home, The next morning, Bill is rudely awakened by an aggressive banging on the door. It's like 5.30 in the morning. He rushes down, panicked, in nothing but a bathrobe, and it's state troopers. 
Mr. Yoder? Yes, what's, what's going on? What's happening? The hospital has been trying to reach you all night. What? Why? You need to call them right away. Okay, thank you. Bill rushed to the phone and found out that Mary was taken to the ICU. Her condition had taken a turn for the worse. Her heart had stopped in the middle of the night and the medical team had worked hard to bring her back. Bill could not believe what he was hearing. He said when he left, Mary was getting better. Mary was on track to be discharged and ordered to bed rest. But now, even before he could step inside Mary's room, the doctor wanted to warn him. It's not going to be pretty. Her whole body is swollen. There's tubes and needles inserted everywhere. She's tied up, strapped to the bed. Her arms are swollen. Her limbs are swollen. She can't even move or even gesture. The only part of her body that indicated that she's alert and conscious The only part that she can control are her eyes. She won't talk to you. She can't even write to send you a message. Bill said going in that room was the worst moment of his life. The worst part wasn't even the parts that were all tied up and stuck with IVs and tubes. The worst part were Mary's eyes because he could tell that she was terrified. She was looking at him like shock, fear, confusion, and Bill's trying to calm her down, but there's only so much he can explain to her when he has no clue what's going on with her. That day, Bill watched Mary code six times. Each time she was brought back, it's like she was waiting for someone. At that point, Bill had gathered everyone. Adam was there. His ex-girlfriend Katie was there in and out to support. Their daughter Tammy had made it. Liana was driving as fast as she could to be with her mom, but it's a six-hour drive. Mary kept coming back after each code. In one instance, Mary was declared brain dead. And then the doctors approached Bill and said, We have no idea how this happened, but Mary is responsive again. Not only is she responsive, but she's trying to tell us she's responsive. She's moving her eyes around the room. Bill said he knew Mary was waiting for someone. He knew Mary was not going to die before Liana got there. Liana was always the closest to Mary. They they were the most alike out of the whole family, um, is what's said. Mary was like the glue of the family. She was the one probably phoning all the family gatherings. Hey, can you make it on Tuesday? Can you do this? Can We got to all do, celebrate this person's birthday. Making sure everyone worked out their differences. That was Mary. And that was also kind of Liana. They were both compassionate. They were both phenomenal at their jobs. Their patients loved them, had nothing but good things to say about these two women. And once Liana got there, the family spent a little bit of time together before Mary coded one last time. She was pronounced dead at 2.54 p.m. July 22nd, 2015. Bill spent 15 minutes alone with his wife. No kids, just Bill and Mary, like how it was in Hawaii 38 years ago. After that, Bill said he had no memory of what happened next. There is a gap in his memory for the next seven hours after he got home. He was with his family, but experts say that this is common. You're so traumatized, your brain goes into autopilot mode. So you're alive, you're moving around, you're sitting down, you're taking a sip of water, but you don't even remember what happened. After Mary died, the family signed over the body to be autopsied. Yes, Mary was 61, but she was otherwise a healthy woman with no life-threatening conditions. She died painfully and suddenly. That is not normal. The hospital wanted to know what went wrong. There were a lot of unanswered questions from this point forward. Who would want Mary dead? Sure, the other family members had their own secrets, but Mary was an open book. She had no one who could possibly hate her, who would want vengeance on her. She was someone that tried every day to serve others. 
Was she collateral damage? Was she getting in the way of someone's pursuits? And why did her husband start dating her sister so soon after the murder? The medical examiners were stumped after opening up Mary's body for the standard autopsy. They literally sat back for a second. The color of the intestinal tract was bizarre. The examiner said it was like this mottled red, green, purple color. He said he had never seen anything like this before. Parts of her liver had this mottled appearance. Her heart was a strange color. I mean, he was so astonished at what he saw. Every vital organ was a strange color. Not just one, all of them. As they started taking samples, they found it evident that Mary was suffering from something called apoptosis when she died, aka it's when your cells start killing themselves off, basically pre-programmed cell suicide. But usually this type of condition only affects one organ. So the cells in the liver will start killing themselves off and then you go into liver failure or heart failure. But Mary Yoder had cell death in every organ that he looked at. That was bizarre. It was very rare, very strange. I mean, her whole body was committing suicide from the inside. All the cells in all the vital organs were injured and they were undergoing programmed suicide, which meant that Mary must have ingested some sort of toxin for this to happen to her whole body. But when they ran the toxicology test, they all came back negative. Now, the hard part is, I know when we think toxicology tests, and I was on this boat too, you just think that they have all the toxins in the world and you run a couple samples of blood and it comes up all these things, right? You Mm -hmm. actually have to dictate what's tested. Mm. So they have the standard toxicology test that most autopsies do. Then you have the more specific ones. But the crazy thing is there's only so much you can test because there's only a limited amount of blood that you can test. Wow. You can't just go willy-nilly unlimited. Let's just test everything under the sun. That is so limited. So you have to analyze everything else and then think maybe it could be this. We have to test for this. Right. So they tested for cyanide, arsenic, drugs, all the standard things. And they had one sample left that could be tested. They had to make sure that they chose the right test. The medical examiners took a risk and they tested for a very particular toxin called colchicine. It's an anti-inflammatory that's generally prescribed to treat gout. Gout is like an inflammatory arthritis and a lot of people with gout typically will visit a chiropractor. So did one of her patients. They sent her blood in to be tested and that was their last hope to get some answers. Came back a resounding positive. (sighs) Mary had died from colchicine poisoning, and it did not make sense. She didn't have gout, and colchicine is not easy to get. Even for treating gout, it's a thin line between being helpful and being destructive. It's an incredibly toxic chemical. The amount it takes to kill someone is about several dozen individual grains of sugar or sand. Imagine sugar, several dozen grains. That amount of colchicine is going to kill an individual. The grains are about the same size as Truvia, the sugar substitute. It's a tiny, tiny powder amount. Tiny. That's why it's highly regulated. It's very difficult to get this stuff without leaving some sort of paper trail or digital trail. If you take too much or if you take it when you don't have any gout, usually within 24 hours to a week after ingestion, you go into multi-organ dysfunction and or failure. But the tricky thing is, it's not that well discussed. So a lot of the times the symptoms present as a GI bug and not many doctors will catch it early on. And even if they do, the amount that Mary had ingested, there is no cure. There is no antidote. 
So of course, everyone scratched their heads thinking, where else could she have gotten it? Because she was not prescribed this. She didn't have gout. Sometimes colchicine could be used in aiding plant growth. Mary was an avid gardener. Could she have accidentally ingested the toxin? I mean, it's in the back of all the medical examiner's minds, but there's no way that she accidentally poisoned herself, right? It didn't make sense. Mary was too smart for that. She had been gardening for too long to overlook something like that. Add another curious thing to that was that Mary rebounded after a period in the ER. She went from feeling ill, she couldn't get up, weak, frail, to feeling better. She was on the up and up. She was healing, talking, getting around, walking, and then out of nowhere, her condition declined again. So the question is, is that part of the process? Or did Mary's killer somehow feed her more colchicine while she was at the hospital? If so, how? And that would mean it was one of the few people that visited her, her closest supporters. Wow, that would be crazy. Many months before Mary was murdered, a new email account was registered, a Gmail, using the chiropractic family care computer. It was the computer on Katie's desk. The Gmail account was named Mr. Adam Yoder1990 at gmail.com, and the password was Adam is gay. This email would be used to order a lethal amount of colchicine. Around this time, Adam made an announcement to his parents. To them, it probably seemed out of the blue, but, you know, to him, it was emotional. He stood there and he laid down the law. Katie is no longer invited to any of our family events or family functions. She's not going to come over and play board games anymore. She's not going to visit Liana's kids anymore. She's not invited to any family stuff. You got it? The Yoders were confused. I mean, this happened out of nowhere, but that's fine. Is everything okay, Adam? Yeah, it's fine. Don't worry about it. It's just our own personal stuff. I don't want it to affect her work. I'm just letting you know I don't feel comfortable. Okay. He never described why or explained. I imagine it would be hard to tell your parents that your girlfriend slept with your friend. Adam had caught Katie cheating with his friend. He was so grossed out. Cheating is already a betrayal. But to choose someone that you both know, a friend, I mean, it feels deliberate. It feels premeditated, right? Their whole relationship. How does that saying go? If you throw a frog in boiling water, it's going to jump out, burned, hurt, and probably very scared of you. But if you throw a frog in lukewarm water and you slowly, ever so incrementally heat up the water higher and higher, the frog will sit there not knowing that it's being cooked to death. That's what Adam and Katie's relationship felt like. Maybe neither of them knew how toxic it was in the beginning, but by the end, someone would die. Or maybe the passion started too strong. Maybe that should have been the red flag. From the beginning of the relationship, they wrote each other emotionally charged letters. Adam told Katie that she had completely changed him for the better and he was completely in love with her. He said that he had never felt more certain, more confident of anything in his entire life. He said that not a day or a night ever ended without the image of Katie's smile in his head. He said he was, quote, cuckoo bananas for her. And when she wasn't there, all he could do was stare at photos of her yearning for the next time he would be able to hold her in his arms. He was grateful, grateful to have found her because now that he had her, now that he had met her, he needed her to live. February of 2012, he sent her a list of reasons why she was a great person. It had 17 points, but oddly, they were all kind of about him. (laughs) He would write things like, you texted me before going to sleep. You told me you loved me. You still love me even though I have to blow my nose constantly. You ordered a buffalo chicken wrap to share with me. If I'm being honest, the man was completely infatuated with Katie, though. Head over heels. 
Katie, on the other hand, seemed to be having her reservations. She didn't really know what the future held for them. And this kind of pushed him deeper into her arms. He's like, I want you so bad. Please reciprocate. He wanted her to know how serious he was, how much she meant to him. Surely, if she knew that, she would be confident. She'd be excited for their future, right? But Katie was confused. Adam was a distracted guy. I think that's the best word to use. He was distracted in what he wanted in life. He was distracted in his career path. One day he wanted this, then the next day was this, and then he was distracted on what he wanted to major in in college. One day is this, and then the next day is this. And then he struggled with depression and anxiety, and Katie just wanted stability. She was looking for someone she could lean on, a man that knew what he wanted in life and was working hard towards it. She felt like she wasn't even asking for much because she herself was very committed to her life goals. She was responsible. She knew exactly what steps she needed to take in order to have her dream life one day. I mean, she loved Adam. She just didn't know if Adam was the man for her. And just as unstable as he was with his career in academics, he was very unstable with her. It was alleged that one day he would be writing to Katie about how he wanted to OD on her. Literally, he said that he wanted to smother her himself in her love. The w- exact words he used were, I want to kill myself to death on Katie Overload. I want to OD on you. And then the next day, he would be pissed off at her for some minor infraction. And he was filled with loathing and would genuinely just yell at her. They would get into these heated fights, arguments. And when it was all said and done, Adam would write to her that they were just crazy in love. They were both guilty of saying mean things that weren't okay. But that's just how relationship works, right? They just have to persevere. And it worked for a while. They spent countless nights laying there, daydreaming about moving in together, building a life. But then another dramatic fight would occur and they would stop talking for a while. And it was just one step forward, two steps back. They did this so often, it was just healthier for them mentally to have never even met each other, honestly, at this point. Adam believed that his drinking and his use of Adderall was a huge factor in their fights. Adderall does make people a little bit irritable. And he said that with the drinking, maybe he just wasn't the man for Katie. There were a few key incidents in their relationship, though, that would just alter the course of everything. So the first one is the affair that Katie had with Adam's gym friend. This changed the dynamic between the two. Katie was always the one with the power. This whole relationship for years, even though they were on and off, it was always Adam coming back to Katie, begging for forgiveness. It was Katie being, I don't know if you're the man for me. It was Adam being like, please, I'll prove it to you. I'll do anything you want. Just take me back. But this cheating incident... Oh no, it seemed that no matter what Katie did, it didn't matter anymore. It did not matter. The affair changed it all. Adam was over it. It wasn't even a choice he consciously made. He could just not get the picture of Katie and his best friend sleeping with each other out of his freaking mind. I think the way that it played out was also very gross. So allegedly, Katie gaslit Adam into thinking that he was jealous, controlling, obsessive for assuming that the two of them were seeing each other. She's like, are you kidding? Don't be like that. Don't be one of those guys. But then um, Katie had plugged her phone in into his computer and I guess their messages got synced and he found out that they were meeting at hotels, sleeping with each other. They were doing like lying to him and saying that she was going to go meet a friend named Jen. Oh, and his number was under his girlfriend's name, Jen or her girlfriend's name, Jen. Yeah, it's not even like a one time thing. A year. They were sleeping with each other for like a year. And all the texts were there, all the premeditated hotel meetups, everything, everything. And when Adam confronted her about it, she's like, what are you talking about? It's all in your head. She still tried to gaslight him, having no clue that he had proof. So Adam told her, had you been honest from the get go, maybe we could have gotten over it. 
When Katie cried about how horrible she felt, Adam did not comfort her like he normally did. Normally, Adam would drop everything and just be with Katie, but not anymore. In the time apart from Katie, after finding out about her cheating, he even started dating someone new. So he's taking all the steps he could to try and move on from Katie. But Katie's begging him, I want us to be together still, please. I'm saving up to buy us a house. Adam's like, what? I have no idea what you're talking about. This is the first time I'm even hearing about a house. He disregarded it and vowed that he would cut Katie out of his life. He knew how toxic she was, that they would never get along. They were always going to have issues. He finally realized how possessive and obsessive and controlling Katie was. And he didn't want that anymore. There was just no way for him to even think of Katie the way he used to. And it's evident in their text messages. Katie would send him a heartfelt text about her depression and how she was thinking about their relationship and how great they had been together and how they can make it better again. And Adam would coldly respond, oh yeah, minus the days you were too busy fucking my friend, of course, though. She would respond, I told you I love you. Just know that I love you. You are loved and fine and okay. But then, as fate would have it, they would be brought back together. One night, Adam was sleeping over at his new girlfriend's house when he gets a call from Katie. He didn't pick it up in time, so he slipped out of his bed to not wake his girlfriend and called Katie back. I do think that Adam still maintained a soft spot for Katie, so he was worried that maybe something had happened. He tried calling her, no answer. He went back in, decided, you know what, it's not my place to worry anymore. Katie's an adult. The next day, he gets bombarded with text messages from Katie about how she had to drive herself to the hospital last night. She was calling him before she went to the hospital because she was suffering a miscarriage. And Adam was the father of her baby. Adam freaked out, started rushing to go meet with Katie, and he was texting her while he was trying to get to her. Katie was somber. She just kept telling him, it doesn't matter that I have a miscarriage. The two of us would have decided to abort the pregnancy anyway. So same result. Katie mentioned how she would have terminated the pregnancy for Adam because he constantly talked about how he didn't want kids and she would have done it for him. Do we know if that's true or? So it's not. The story itself doesn't make sense because later she alleges that she was at the hospital for an hour and she had an ectopic pregnancy and that's not feasible so she claimed that she was bleeding a lot and she there's just no way you would have been discharged in an hour and there's no hospital record so unless she went to some hospital that doesn't keep any records which doesn't make sense yeah yeah Yeah. so adam didn't know that though adam is just concerned he's just texting her like what are you talking about and she just kept saying i would have aborted the child anyway but if you had wanted a kid that would have changed everything almost kind of guilt tripping him Adam said the energy he was getting from her messages were basically, oh, if we were a couple, we would have made this decision together. And if you told me you didn't want a kid, I would have sacrificed for you. But if you told me you wanted a kid, I would have been the happiest person in the world. That type of vibe. Adam argued that they should have talked about it before. Katie argued that she would have been a single mom because Adam had expressly stated that he never wanted children. Listen, I just think the both of them are so toxic because none of this is really a conversation right now if she had a miscarriage. It wasn't a choice. It wasn't my choice, your choice. It just seemed, it seems like a lot. But after hearing that, Adam ranted to Katie about how this was the worst day of his life. (laughs) These people are so toxic. And how this is a decision that they both needed to have made, not just her, but how do you make a decision on a miscarriage? He gets to Katie's. She's crying. He's comforting her. Katie screamed at him. You were quite clear. I was very alone. What does it change? You don't want to be tied to me. That was my life. You left me alone. Adam yelled at her, fuck you, that officially cuts us. I want nothing to do with you. You're being fucking selfish. 
So they start fighting before Adam hisses at her that he hates her. And she screamed back at him. So what? You would have gone to doctor's appointments with me just like that? Why did you leave? You're not even here anymore. Again, it was a miscarriage, allegedly. It wasn't even a miscarriage. It's, it seems to not have existed. But what's going on? Now, I'm not saying that I question people who have miscarriages, just to put that out there. But she claimed that she went to the hospital. She was having a very violent miscarriage. She would later embellish the story by saying the doctors were surprised she's even alive. So that's very different from having a miscarriage at home. And I think if she did suffer a miscarriage and she was embellishing the story to have Adam feel a certain way, that's not appropriate either. So anyway, for days, the couple fought over text in person on the phone, just nonstop. Katie told Adam more about what happened in the hospital. And she said she called him around midnight. She's not feeling well. She was at home. He didn't pick up. So she rushed out of the house to take herself to the ER. She was in such a rush that she left her phone behind. She said that she had severe stomach pain, severe bleeding. It was bad. When she got there, she was informed that she had a miscarriage and internal bleeding was occurring. So she had an ectopic pregnancy, which the baby is forming outside of the womb. It's just... It could literally kill the mother. And she said the doctors were able to save her. They kept telling her how lucky she was to be alive and how she was bleeding so much internally she could have died. She could have died instantly if she didn't come in on time. Adam was confused. He said, you called me once and then just left your fucking phone? She said, I was sick and apparently in shock. Even though the two fought over Katie's actions that night, which I'm not sure why they would argue about what she did because if this were a true story, it was a miscarriage. What was she supposed to do? But after fighting, Adam would still go over to Katie's to support her. He felt responsible. He felt like he was part of the reason that she went through a traumatic experience like this. In fact, Adam felt so responsible that he broke up with his new girlfriend, told her that he needed to be with Katie right now, and they would rekindle their relationship. And just like that, the two were back on. But it wouldn't last long. Adam felt obligated to be with Katie, which is not a great way to jump back into an already toxic relationship. Adam tried to soothe his pain and his discomfort by drinking more, and Katie could tell that he was slipping away. So then the attempted suicides happened. This is something that happened um, quite frequently in their relationship, it seemed. Katie would send Adam a series of cryptic text messages about how she wanted to leave. She never specified where, leading Adam to believe that she didn't want to be here on Earth alive anymore. And then he would try to text her, what do you mean by leaving? I'm sorry. I know. It's okay. Things change. That's what she would respond. It was so cryptic. And he would respond again, what do you mean by leaving? Katie then would stop responding. Adam would freak out and he would say things like, please just answer me. Are you okay? Where are you? Please just answer me. Sometimes he would get upset. I hate when you do this. There's no reason whatsoever to be cryptic like this. Just tell me you're okay. One time, Katie sent a cryptic text to Adam and he said that he knew that the messages that she was trying to convey was that she wanted to hurt herself. Adam felt like it was a setup, but he fell for it every single time. So this time he rushed to Katie's house where her sisters were hanging out in the basement playing beer pong. He's like, where's Katie? We have no idea. He goes back to his car, driving around, frantically looking for Katie in the neighborhood. He's calling Katie, and she sounds distressed. She sounds out of it. Katie, are you okay? Listen, just drive back to my place. Can you do that for me? Katie ends up driving up to her house, which he happened to be at, and she was in the driver's side, crying with a bottle of pills in her hand. He's begging from outside the window, Katie, please turn off the car right now. Please, 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 just come with me. Come with me. And she screamed, no, no. 
He's like, Katie, please could just come inside. And she hid the pill bottles, jumped out of the car, ran inside. And Adam ran after her, obviously, to make sure that she was okay. He also later went back to get the pill bottles. And it was like 500 pills of Valium. Yeah, very deadly. Adam counted each one to make sure that she didn't take any. And she did not. Adam just said that he was stressed. He felt like if he broke up with her, she would commit suicide. So just like that, they were back on together for a while. That's how it went. And then there was the rape allegation. There were a few. The first one predates Adam's relationship with Katie. When the two of them first started dating in 2011, Katie told Adam that she had been raped by her ex-boyfriend in high school. Adam said, she told me that this ex-boyfriend pushed her down on a bed and said, do you love me? She said yes, and he spun her around, bent her over the bed, and brutally raped her. And then after it was over, he supposedly made her have dinner with his family. Now, I don't want to say that this is false. I don't want to say this is true. There's no police report, but like a lot of rapes, um, especially when you know the person, it's very scary. It's very terrifying to report it to the police. So again, we have no clue if this is true. Adam was distraught, though, when he heard Katie tell the story. He was heartbroken for her. He felt like she was this traumatized bird and she was wounded. He just wanted to be there for her. He wanted to take care of her. And now in hindsight, he feels like this incident, this way of starting their relationship in 2011 made him more attached to her. And later, he would be on the other side of the allegations. But before that, we have to talk about alpha brain supplements. This is not an ad, okay? alpha brain supplements. You know those TikToks where people are like, hey, forget reading my messages. You would have to pay me $10,000 to look at my notes app. Do you agree with that? Because sometimes your notes app is your stream of consciousness. Sometimes I'm brainstorming on my notes app and it's weird. Yeah, it's weird, but I don't think anyone's that interested (laughs) except maybe you. (laughs) Or the police. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, a notes app is where I have, I draft out all my hard text messages it's where I draft out all my emails that are important. It's, uh, you know, that's where I, it's where I go. It's my brainstorm board. This case is fascinating because we see uh, some of these notes apps later on. And it's kind of weird. A lot of people's phones were confiscated. So we get to go through Bill's phone, Adam's phone, Katie's phone, like everybody's phones, the, the office phone, everything. All the tech stuff is basically taken. Our apartment lease in New York City is almost up, which means it's time for that hunt for the perfect apartment again. And I'm sure everyone can agree to this, but when your apartment takes off all of the boxes, you feel so much happier being home. You look forward to going home, but it is hard. It is hard finding the perfect place, especially in a place like New York. For us, we need to have an in-unit washer and dryer. That is like a non-negotiable. We need to have hardwood floors because of my allergies. And we love any unit facing Southwest. That is golden hour prime time. And since we're not in New York City right now, we've been using Apartments.com to help us find our new home. Apartments.com has helped millions of renters find their perfect place with powerful search tools to help find a rental listing that checks all of your specific unique boxes. I love that there's a ton of 3D virtual tours, which have come in honestly so handy for us because we're constantly traveling these days. It saves us so much time and money, and it's really helpful for if you're moving to a new city. Maybe you're moving to the next town over. Saves you so much time. My favorite feature, though, is the amenity filters. So you can make sure your possible future home has all of the amenities you need. Like I said, in-unit washer and dryer. But you can even search for units with a balcony so you can enjoy a nice sunrise with your coffee. 
And once you find a new place that you like, you can even favorite them so they're all neatly organized. I get so excited to apartment hunt every night with my fiance. So visit apartments.com, the place to find a place. To be completely transparent with you, I am still at that stage in my life where if you tell me, hey, something's going to make you feel better or something's going to make your skin clear, I'll probably be like, give me the clear skin. But growing up is realizing that you can have both. And I have made it a habit to implement things in my life that let me have both. Did you know that your gut health really impacts your skin health? And not just skin, apparently your gut health can impact your immune system, your energy levels, even your mental health. That is why I've now added my favorite probiotic from Symbiotica to my morning routine. It sounds weird to say, but Symbiotica's health supplements are now part of my skincare routine almost. If you guys don't know, Symbiotica is a supplement company that only uses clean premium ingredients in its formulas. No seed oils, no fillers, no additives, no natural flavors, and no artificial ingredients. Symbiotica also formulates all of their supplements for optimal absorption. For example, I love their vitamin C so much, which is also really good for your skin. If you didn't know, everybody loves it. I mean, it's probably the most popular vitamin C amongst all of my friends and family. We love Symbiotica. Their vitamin C is formulated with liposomal technology, which basically means the vitamin C is delivered to the part of your digestive tract where it can be optimally absorbed. And I just love throwing one in my bag on the go, especially when I'm traveling. Symbiotica makes it so easy to stick to a routine, not just because of their supplements being great and tasting great and making me feel great, but also because they get delivered monthly. That means I never have to worry about refilling my supplements or running out and it's just so easy to pause a delivery or add a new supplement to my delivery. With Symbiotica, I've really noticed an improvement in my skin health, but also I feel like I have more energy and mental clarity. Symbiotica has countless high quality supplements that you can choose from. Sleep supplements, cognitive supplements, anti-aging supplements. If you're not sure which supplements would be best for your specific needs, you can do a short quiz on Symbiotica's website and they'll recommend what you could benefit from. This year is your year. Are you ready to feel the results? Head over to Symbiotica.com and use code ROTTEN for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. That's symbiotica.com and use code ROTTEN. So 9.30 p.m., Katie opens up her notes app and she starts writing. Yeah, the police can know when you open up. When was this? This is uh, before Mary passed away. Katie opened up her notes app and started writing optimal for finals dash all about that A-plus life. It's a stream of consciousness. Optimal for finals, all about that A-plus life. And then she wrote what looked like a draft of a text message she was going to send later. She wrote, you like it? It works at its max with fat to transfer it. Take it consecutively. It's synergetic. So it gets better the more you take it and lasts longer once you run out. Katie continued to write that if you experience vivid dreams after taking it, just take the supplement earlier in the day. It's all to help with the brain's focus. She compared whatever she was referring to in the notes app as a bit like Adderall. She wrote, did a lot of research on it in the brain. It would just be awesome for you to have going into finals. So what on earth is going on? It's like she's drafting out a conversation in her head and then writing down her responses in advance. Let me explain. Adam was going into finals week and he was really stressed. Katie, who has also been diligently working and going through school, had given him a bottle of pills, supplements. These are ones that anyone can buy. These are supplements. They're not Adderall. They're not prescription. They were called alpha brain supplements. So I'm assuming they have something like lion's mane and these things in there, right? Not saying that those don't work. I I take some. But she said that it would help him focus during finals week and he wouldn't have to rely on Adderall. She was very enthusiastic about this product, saying that she loved it, work like a charm. Which, side note, now that you have that information, isn't her notes a little strange? The title on her notes app started with Optimal for Finals, All About That A-Plus Life. 
She also had these imaginary practice conversations about how she would talk about Alpha Brain. On one hand, some people would say that's incredibly suspicious. Maybe she put something in those pills. Others would say maybe she's nervous to talk to Adam and is just looking for an excuse to get back into his life. It's a little toxic, yeah, but is it deadly and illegal? No. Adam asked Katie how long she had been taking Alpha Brain. And she texted him, I did a month with that and my daily vitamins before midterms. Then I stopped, took it a couple of weeks, and started again gearing up for finals. And she texted, all about that A-plus life. Let me know how it works for you. Adam opened up the bottle. It had 31 pills. He took one out and popped it in his mouth. He tried to focus. Nothing really happened. I mean, I guess if you're taking Adderall, I'm not sure if your brain will feel the effects of Alpha Brain. Let's just say he was less than impressed. He stopped taking it before Katie texted him again, reminding him, hey, are you taking the Alpha Brain? And he said, no, it doesn't really work. And she's like, well, just give it another chance. It really works for me. He took a second pill, and within an hour, he was sick to his stomach on the floor in a fetal position. He texted his father, Bill, and said, Dad, I need to go to urgent care. Bill rushed him there, and they were told that Adam most likely had a stomach bug that was going around. He was let go, and the next day, it got worse. Bill saw him, Adam's green in the face, and he's like, whoa, what happened? Were you taking the the meds that the doctor prescribed? Dad, I was in the bathroom all night. Bill, like he would later do with Mary, called Liana, his doctor daughter. And she's like, what do I do? She stayed calm and said, okay, if he's really throwing up, take him to the ER. He could use some fluids. In the ER, they were reassured that this GI bug going around had a particular vengeance against humans. It was like the worst they'd seen in years. But he was going to be okay. Adam was sent home and he got a ding on his phone. Katie asked why he was ignoring her. He texted back, not ignoring you, spent yesterday in the ER, very sick with a stomach bug. She sent, sad face emoji, are you feeling better? You can text me if you need anything at all. Not really, and will do, thank you. Okay, heart emoji. It felt like Katie was going to pounce on this opportunity of Adam being sick to try and strike up a conversation with him, to interact with him. She wrote, how are you feeling? Hi, hello, what kind of pain is it? Just take it day by day. I'm not sure what can help a stomach bug, but did the ER give you something? There are medical extensions for final grades if you can't study. Adam responded here and there, but it seemed like he did what he always did these days. He was distant, unavailable, just not into Katie anymore. Katie was quite interested, though. Whether it's out of genuine concern or something else, I guess only Katie knows. She would text him, but seriously, do you think it's food poisoning? He responded, no, not food poisoning, a nasty virus. It's like destroyed me from the inside. Then after emptying my entire stomach excessively, it's just shutting down. Wow, you could be on some like medical show. You could have been on like the house. Seriously, this virus is a mean motherfucker. On the plus side, you beat it, and now you have the antibodies for it. Later, Katie texted to say that she was sick too, and I quote, with my own stubborn little bug. She listed a bunch of symptoms that sounded very similar to what Adam had experienced. She listed to him or? To him. Oh, when Mm -hmm. she was texting him. Yeah, so the first week or so with Adam of this stomach bug, was the worst, but eventually Adam felt better. But it was one of those sicknesses that stayed way longer than it's welcome. He said he didn't feel like himself for at least a full month. So when Katie couldn't get information about the stomach flu, the alpha brain supplements, she started talking about the $22,839.99 elephant in the room. You're like, what? Okay, same. Adam was also confused. He woke up one day, a month before Mary died, and saw a text message. All it read was $22,839.99. Another text came in. ASAP. What? 
Adam was flabbergasted. He sent question mark, question mark. Are you telling me to come up with 23K this month? Katie responded, current balance. What? That, that figure is comically high. I wonder how many things were added in there that you had said you didn't want to be paid back for. Wow, you're amazing. She texted him nonchalantly, compound interest. Wait, this is, they were dating though? Uh, when they were dating, Katie had lent him 20-ish thousand dollars, but she had added on a couple thousand for compound interest. And now that they were broken up and he's becoming even more distant, she is expecting her money back. Now, some people will say that's a very normal response to being owed by an ex-boyfriend. And then some will say that it's almost weird the way she went about it. She's like dangling it above him. When they're okay, when they're friendly, she won't ask for it. And then when he's slipping away, this is her way of building another connection. Oh, you were saying that. Okay. Now, Adam was in debt. Yeah. And Katie was now role-playing as a loan shark. And it's kind of wild the way that this debt even happened, this loan even happened. Adam had some credit card debt. He claimed it was bad, but he was just paying off the monthly minimum, trying to get by. It's not like he would have died if he didn't pay off his credit cards in full. Like, he's paying a big chunk to interest rates, but it's not a big deal. Katie kept offering to give him a loan to pay off his cards. And the more she talked about it, the more it kind of made sense. You're right, maybe these APR rates or whatever are astronomically high. Okay, so he accepted it. And from there, it got easier and easier to borrow more and more money from her. At one point, he borrowed thousands of dollars to put a down payment on a Jeep Wrangler. So he owed her around $20,000. Now, I am on the boat that loans don't expire when a romantic relationship expires. So I do think that Katie does need to be paid back. But uh, I guess Adam felt otherwise. He would say things like, I'm trying my best to get you paid so I can get you out of my life forever. He felt like she was holding it over his head. Adam would later claim that he believed Katie forced him into taking this loan so that she could always tie them together somehow. This money would be the thing that made sure he was never fully out of her life. Now, side note about this loan. Where did she get the money? We're going to explore that in part two because it's a little weird Hmm. or very weird. So she allegedly did this whole loan thing after the cheating and the pregnancy fiasco. Hmm. That's why he felt like it was very strategic. Got it. Because I don't know, I guess as um, someone in a relationship after... Cheating and pregnancy, I don't think I'd be in the most loan-giving mood. Does that make sense? Now, remember how Katie was obsessed with her notes app? Well, one day she starts typing out a, a draft. It was almost like a draft of a text message again. And it's the story. So these texts, mm-hmm. like Apple notes, yeah. you're saying, mm-hmm. even if you delete it, they can see it? Yeah. Are you serious? Yeah. They have forensic teams that just work on recovering deleted notes. You know what's crazy to me, though? Some cases have forensic teams that look like they just came out of a hacker movie. Yeah. And some teams, in some cases, they're like, when did she message who? Would she texted someone? Yeah. We can't get the records then. Yeah, exactly. It's very confusing. That is kind of scary. Yeah. Wow, okay. So she starts typing out a text, like a draft in there. And it's the story of a very violent rape. Eventually, Katie would text Adam about it. She kind of dangled it over his head. I'm not sure. Uh, maybe she was just nervous about talking to him about it. It felt like dangling. She what kept did she saying, say? There's something you don't know. And then she would just disappear from the text thread. And then she would type the bubbles in the iPhone and he would see the little type, type, type. And then she would disappear. And then she'd be like, No, you know what? I don't want to talk about it. And then she would leave. And she just kept doing that. So in my head, I'm like, Okay, genuinely, she could be nervous, yes. But there, it does feel a little, I want you to know that I'm thinking about something. Mm -hmm. That's sinister and scary. So she sent in a text July 26th. Finally, she's opening up. After we went swimming, I brought you home, dot, dot, dot. Adam is fed up at this point. 
I know, Katie, if you have something to say, say it. Fucking say it or don't bring it up again. She didn't respond. Adam, frustrated, texted again. Katie! She finally responded. I don't know what you remember. You were really quite drunk. Then she started typing something and deleting it and typing it and deleting it. And Adam was going crazy. And Katie said, it's a lot. Uh, It can wait. You go to sleep. It's pretty late. Time to sleep anyway. Adam blew a fuse. Don't you fucking dare. This is your last chance to send it. Finish typing and send it. Katie took 10 minutes to send a text, but allegedly she didn't type it. That's not why she took so long. She waited and then sent the long text she had already drafted in her notes app from a while ago. The text was pretty damning. Adam told Katie he didn't remember any of the alleged rape. He said that he had a slight memory of her slapping him, but he didn't know anything else. He was confused. He texted Katie, I don't know what's wrong with you in your head to not hate me. Apparently, I'm an attempted murderer, Katie. So she sent him the text of how he her allegedly and he's confused like i'm an attempted murderer this sounds so violent this is not good news please talk to me just for a little bit i'm sorry i upset you katie i was hoping we could continue this conversation let me know the choice is yours katie might check myself into suicide watch too if it gets bad enough going to aa tomorrow if you still want to see me you can see me please text me back so i know you're okay now that he was being accused of having violently raped her, he kind of changed his tone. I don't know if that change of tone was out of pure genuine concern that he did commit this atrocious act or if it was out of the fact that he didn't want her to go to the police. Mm. Katie took three hours before she responded. I don't know what I'm going to do, Adam. He begged, will you talk to me on the phone, please? I don't understand how this could have happened. They got on the phone to talk about Adam's Adderall addiction uh, or habit. I'm not sure how he would categorize it. And over the phone, Katie described in length the violent rape that Adam had allegedly committed. Adam said he didn't know what to think in that moment. He just knew that he needed to keep her close. He said he was so scared because he doesn't remember any of this. And even an accusation like this could have ruined his life. So what's the accusation? How bad is it? According to Katie... Adam came over to her house to go swimming with her sisters and he starts drinking with a bunch of the other friends and guys there and Katie was annoyed because he had already promised to stop drinking but here he was drinking. Katie left the pool and went inside the house to lock herself in the bathroom in anger. When she got out, Adam was gone. As much as she hated him, she was worried because he was so drunk. She's in her bikini. She wrapped a towel around herself and went to go find him. He was walking down the street in his swim trunks. So she slowed down the car. Hey, get in. I'll take you home. He gets in, they drive to Adam's place where he lives with roommates, and she parks in the driveway, and without saying anything, Adam takes her keys from the ignition and runs into his place, leaving her with no way to get back home. She can't start her car again. She's like, what the hell? She gets out the car, goes to find him in his room, and she's annoyed. She said that she was on her period and needed to change her tampon, like it was it was starting to leak. The last thing she wanted to do was go into the house and like get her keys and deal with him being drunk. And when she got inside, Adam was on the bed and she kept asking, where are my keys? Adam allegedly refused to tell her. So she kept looking around for them. No keys anywhere. My keys, Adam. Turn off the lights, Katie. No, I'm looking for my keys. I want to go home. Come on, Adam. You can't drive. What? I didn't drink. I just need to go home and change. I can just come back right after if you need me. You're a liar. Katie said that Adam blocked Katie from the door and threatened her. I'm going to break your wrist and snap all your fingers. Then according to Katie, he threw her on the bed and threatened her. Nobody will ever believe you. Nobody's going to help you. Nobody's going to find you. I'm going to kill you. Adam had her pinned down with both hands around her throat and he screamed, Say goodbye, Katie. I'm going to kill you. 
Katie said it felt like a death grip around her throat. He screamed, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. He continued allegedly screaming, you lying cunt. No one cares about you. No one wants to help you. You're a cunt, a slut, a liar. You lied to me. You're not even bleeding. No one's going to miss you. Katie would later report the violent rape and she would tell the sheriff that Adam had put his hands around her throat and started kneeling on her shoulders, pulled her hair with one hand, using the other hand to put his penis into her mouth. Katie alleged Adam then flipped her over on her stomach and inserted his penis in her vagina without permission to do so. Katie claimed she was crying and begged nonstop, screamed for Adam to stop. She said to Adam in a text, You threw me on the bed, so I was looking up at you and said, Goodbye, Katie. You said goodbye. You were smiling. My towel was twisted around my thighs and legs, and your hands were around my neck. Your arms locked, your full weight on me. I couldn't breathe. I thought, this is what choking is. I'm going to die. When I finally woke up again, my bottoms were off and my top was hanging. You said, I'm going to choke you. You were kneeling on my chest, and your fingers were scraping the roof of my mouth. I gagged. I couldn't gag. Then I couldn't breathe. You flipped me around by my hair. You fingers flipped back over, yanked my hair, twisted my neck, bit my lip hard, blood bit my body, biting, pulling. You went down, pulled me on top of you. You slapped my face. My ear rang. You slapped me again. Katie continued that Adam slapped and slapped her before twisting her around and going and going. And Katie claimed it ended abruptly. After this allegedly brutal, violent Adam just rolled over next to her and fell asleep. She said she was terrified. She was feeling around to find the keys, careful to not wake him up. When she finally found it, she quietly got up, went to the bathroom, put her bathing suit back on, and left. Katie texted Adam about the incident, saying, and that's when I knew I was alone. I went home and I had to reach up inside me once, twice, to grab the tampon that was pushed so far in. I didn't know who to call. I didn't want people to worry about you. You really didn't remember it. So I was quiet, and that's how things ended. She didn't confront or tell Adam about it till months afterwards. She even texted him a list of injuries. So this is like finally, months afterwards, she told him about the rape. And she texted him a list of injuries that she sustained from this alleged rape. And she wrote, Bruise on my upper lip, above my eyebrow, two mirrored on each jawline, a small lump on my left cheek, bruises on my forearm, slight bruises on my thighs, bruises and red bites on my collarbone, brown bruising and cuts on my breast, two large purple black bruises on my neck, a larger one on the left side, a darker one on the right, different size bruises. She would even send him a series of photographs detailing her injuries. Now, this is where the speculations occur. The injuries in the pictures provided do not match with her detailed injuries that she texted Adam. She claimed that she took these pictures the day of the assault and had kept them and never told Adam about it, never sent it until months later. Mm -hmm. But curiously, none of the photos ever showed her face, even though a lot of the listed injuries were of her face. And most people would probably take a picture of their face if there was a lot of face injuries, no? So what do you mean? It's very zoomed in? On just her shoulder. Oh, she didn't include face injuries. Yes, she yes. included everything else. Yeah, but the setting is unclear too. Um, so Adam believed that she downloaded these pictures from the internet. And there's kind of... But that's very easy to track, no? Yeah. So the reason he thinks that, and a lot of people are on his side about this particular thing, is that Katie just kept going and going and going. I'm going to get back to the pictures. She texted him. I didn't even think after it happened that the bruises would show up so dark. I would never want to live in fear of you. I guess you really did want to kill me. You knew it was me, though. You said my name. These injuries are from you. It just sucks. He's like, what? 
he felt like he really was being gaslit at this point once he got those pictures. None of them show Katie's face. None of them show her bathroom, his bathroom, nothing. It's just literally a zoomed in picture of a shoulder with a bruise that doesn't even match the injury list that she gave. Everything just felt weird. He didn't feel like it was Katie. And the timing he felt was strange. Katie had finally started dating someone new. And just like she had done with Adam, she confided in this new boyfriend about a violent rape she endured at the hands of an ex-boyfriend, a.k.a. Adam. Authorities later theorized that Katie didn't think that the new boyfriend would drag her into his car and personally drive her to the police station, which he did. So she was forced to file a police report. And she didn't like that or what's going on? Uh, it seemed like she was hesitant. Another thing to note, the pictures of her injuries that she showed Adam, she never once mentioned to the police that she had taken pictures, never once mentioned that she had pictures, which is something that victims would provide if they had it. She also never mentioned to the police that Adam's place was filled with people the day of the rape. So Adam is sitting there looking at these pictures. He said, he claimed that when Katie confronted him, he was being gaslit to the point where he didn't remember anything from that night. He was so drunk. He almost believed he had violently raped her. Mm -hmm. But then those pictures came in and he's like, this is weird. That doesn't mm -hmm. look like her. And then he starts thinking, you know what? Maybe I should have my own little investigation on that night. That night, all of his roommates were home and they have thin walls and they had a bunch of friends over. It, it wasn't like a raging house party with loud music. They were just eating pizza and hanging out. So if Katie was screaming, stop, stop, like she claimed, someone would have heard. Now, side note, Adam's roommate is an MMA fighter or was an MMA fighter. And he's like really a strong feminist. If he heard anyone was messing with a girl, if he had even the suspicion that someone was messing with a girl, he would have body slammed them to the ground himself. Okay, that's an interesting detail. So at this point, Adam is like, mm, this feels weird. And he starts pulling away from Katie. And I don't think Katie was expecting that. She thought that this would bring them closer. Maybe he would beg for her to not go to the police. But Adam had his doubts, right? Another thing was that Katie came back after the alleged rape. She went home, changed, and came back to him. She later claimed it's because he needed his inhaler and she was still, after all of this, worried for his health. Like he was so drunk, what if he hurt himself? Now, I don't know how to feel about this because I don't think victims need to act a certain way, but Adam felt like that was weird. Adam also remembers the next morning, Katie was still in bed next to him and the two of them had morning sex twice and he saw her completely naked and he's thinking, well, she had all these cuts and bruises and bite marks. Wouldn't I see that the next morning? Like maybe not the bruises, but the bite marks and all of that and the swollen, like it, I would see something, right? He didn't. Now, again, I don't want to say that this means that she wasn't raped because victims of sexual assaults do not have to act a certain way to prove that they were assaulted. And also, sometimes you do have sex with the perpetrator again, and this time it's consensually. It, it doesn't mean anything. But during sex, again, Adam said nothing. Couldn't see a single scratch. And she took care of him the rest of the day while he felt hungover and sick. So that, coupled with the internet pictures, the timing of the allegation, that she only brought it up when she had a new boyfriend, the fact that she wrote out what he did to her on her notes app and held it over his head. A lot of people felt a little bit icky about this allegation. But the police were going to investigate. So they asked Katie to do what's known as a cold call, where you call the perpetrator and talk about the rape and get them to confess or uh, like confirm details. And this is at the time that she was going to the police station with the ex, uh, yeah. new boyfriend. Mm -hmm. So the police put her on the spot. Yeah. So that's how you get proof. Since a rape kid is out of the question, it's been months. Katie called Adam and instead of confessing, Adam had some time to th think about it. And he's bringing up questions about the validity of her story. He's like, my roommate, the MMA fighter. 
He did not fuck around with men messing with women. He was home. I asked him, he was home that day. If he heard any scream, squeal, anything that was alarming from my room, he would have slammed the door in. And on top of that, Katie, anyone who knows me can tell you that when I get drunk, I like to retreat by myself and go to sleep quietly. He also questioned her credibility since she had lied about a lot of things in the past, how she lied for a full year that she wasn't cheating on him with a mutual friend. And in the end, Adam got frustrated and yelled at her, Katie, I have reason to believe you're lying about this. Katie hung up the phone in frustration. They got nothing out of it. Now, that's not to say the rape didn't happen, and that's not to say that the police are going to start stop investigating, but Katie would later retract the rape allegation herself. She chose not to press charges. Again, that doesn't mean that it didn't happen. I'm just saying. But she held it over Adam's head. Even without a conviction, she knew that this had the potential to ruin his life. People liked Katie. They would rally around her. They both knew that. Katie would taunt Adam with things he allegedly did to her during the rape, and Adam would respond straight up. I don't like these conversations. A lot of lying hurts me deep. I'm going to do my best to let go and maintain a friendship with you now. Let me know if you want to do the same. Katie was enraged. Lying from who? From you. Please don't make this harder, Katie. Please. Katie warned Adam that he should know better. She wrote, me dropping the charges was indication that I'm trying to move on, not have PTSD over this incident. She asked him, what would be the point of lying about you doing this to me? She mentioned how she could still tell his parents, his friends, and everyone they knew about it, but she chose not to. She wrote, I would never lie that that would happen to me, especially by you. If I were to try and keep a friendship going with you, why would I say that you did this to me? And then Katie tried to lie about sleeping with Adam's friend again. She tried to say that she thought about sleeping with him. And at the hotel, they took off their clothes and they were about to have sex. But she said, no, 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 I can't do it. She wrote, I'd be less embarrassed to say that I had sex with someone versus I thought about it. Your friend lied to you and hurt you. And I'm sorry. I wanted to sleep with him. But once we got started, I started freaking out completely. She still had no idea that he had all those texts. Adam texted her, just stop. I don't want to hear it anymore. And she went back to the rape. She wrote, it's pretty specific what I'm telling you. I think assault would be bad enough not to include sexual and choking and death threats. It could be worse, but it could be better. I'm a private person. You think I want that kind of attention? The rape allegation and the loan he took from Katie would effectively bind the two together. For honestly, forever. Adam had to make sure Katie didn't turn on him and try to report the alleged rape again. Katie could strike up conversation whenever she wanted by demanding or asking for payment on the loan. And when all of this stopped working, because eventually it did, Adam pulled away far enough. Mm. Katie would anonymously write a two-page letter to the medical examiner claiming that Adam Yoder had murdered his own mother in cold blood. And that is the end of episode one. Uh, Part two will be up Sunday for the minisode and there's a lot going on there like this is just the background the actual method of the murder all of there's so many text messages so many notes that are so bizarre so much photoshopping so many witnesses the affair between bill and mary's sister it's it's a lot so please stay tuned and like i said don't make an opinion until you hear part two because part two gets wild that's it for today's episode please stay safe and i'll see you guys on sunday bye